Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. <clears throat> After about 20 weeks in the Psalms, we pause our study of the Psalms. I hope to come back to them again and again and again until we get through all of them, or through about 60 of them so far. But we will be beginning a study of Ephesians beginning this morning, and it will last many months. Uh, the more I look into the book, the longer I think it might be, we'll, we will see. This morning, I'm quite optimistically hoping to cover two verses in an introduction. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, as we turn to this epistle, this letter to your church, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we would receive your instruction, your truth for us, that you would be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, whenever we begin a study of a book, it's necessary to cover some basic questions and set the context in the background. And we are going to start this morning by doing just that. It is my hope that over the next few months, you might consider reading the book of Ephesians um, many times, I'd suggest considering reading it weekly. It takes about 15 to 17 minutes to read the epistle. Um, and the advantage of reading like that is you become more and more familiar with it as you read and reread and re-reread. And this is a rich, rich letter. <clears throat> so we'll begin this morning setting the uh, authorship and background, then we'll try to cover the basic structure and overview of the book, and then we'll try to dive into the first two verses. So to begin with, the authorship and date. Authorship and date. Now this is rather obvious, but it still is worth noting. It's written by Paul. He says so in at least two places. If you look at one one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then if you turn to three one, chapter three, verse one, for this reason I, Paul. So the letter self-evidently claims to be written by the apostle. And this was the uniform position of the church up until maybe the last 100, 150 years or so, when some have questioned its authenticity. Now, let me just make one obvious suggestion. Um, if this letter is not written by Paul, then this letter is in error. And if it is in error, then it is not the word of God. I only suggest that because there are some who want to try to challenge Pauline authorship and still try to hold on to this as some sort of word of God. It is self-evidently an error in at least chapter 1, 1 and 3, 1, if it is not written by Paul. All of our earliest copies, it's written by Paul. The early church, it's written by Paul. The theology within it, Pauline, through and through. So this may seem like belaboring the obvious, but it is worth emphasizing. As best as we can tell, and this is where it's a little trickier, written 60 to 62 AD, somewhere in there. It's written around then. We can't pinpoint it exactly. Um, and I'd like to highlight its canonicity. It's, it's interesting, this epistle is one of the earliest letters recognized by the early church. Um, it wasn't until the early 4th century, 311, 314 AD, that the early church got together in a um, council and came out with an authorized list of books, the Council of Constantine or Constantinople. But far before then, the early church was recognizing Scripture. We already saw in 1 Timothy how within 1 Timothy, Paul quotes Luke and Deuteronomy side by side to Timothy saying, as the Scripture says. 
in 1 Timothy 5.18, indicating that even at the time Paul was writing Timothy, Luke was in circulation and accepted. We don't have something quite so powerful as that, but this book of the earliest writings of the Christian church has a letter from Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, writing somewhere at the end of the first century, around 180, 110 AD, and he writes this, For I am convinced that you are all well-trained in the sacred scriptures, that nothing is hidden from you, nothing, something not granted to me, only... As it is written in these scriptures, be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the sun set on your anger. What's interesting here is Polycarp, disciple of John, is quoting with the same introduction these scriptures, Ephesians 4.26 and Psalm 4.5. And so what that tells us is that as early as the end of the first century, the church received and understood Paul's letter to the Ephesians to be scripture on a par with the Psalms. And they did this without a church council. Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And self-evidently they did. This is an important point to make. The Council of Constantine did not um, give the scripture authority. It recognized the authority of scripture. And as soon as the ink dried, as soon as the apostle Paul had written this, it had all the authority it would ever have. And Jesus' sheep always and in every place have recognized and heard the Lord's voice in it. And we too follow in company with that. Your blank here, immediately received by the church. Canonicity, immediately received by the church. <clears throat> so authorship and date, Paul, around 60 AD. Canonicity, immediately received by the church. Location of writing. Well, one thing that's evident within the letter is Paul is in jail. Turn to Ephesians 3, chapter 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then, the end of the book, chapter 6, his closing greeting. Um, he's evidently in prison. He, he can't come himself. He delivers this letter via... Um, Tychicus, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So most likely imprisonment in Rome, most likely the imprisonment described at the end of the book of Acts. In Acts 28, Paul is in Rome awaiting trial. So our best guess is it's that imprisonment, and if it is that imprisonment, then Paul is in a Roman jail cell when he writes Ephesians. He's imprisoned, definitely, probably in Rome, probably the imprisonment that occurs at the end of Acts. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. So, location writing. Occasion. Occasion. Why does Paul write Ephesians? And these are all important concepts to get in mind because they help frame the book. And here is where Ephesians is rather interesting and unique. It is remarkable because it is unremarkable. It's to give general instruction with no particular crisis or event. If you think through it, most of Paul's epistles are occasional. Something has happened or something is going to happen which requires the writing of the letter. Even the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans, Paul tells us at the end of the letter, is written in preparation of him coming by. He wants them to send him on his way to Spain. 
And so in preparation for his um, intention to arrive and his intention to have them send him on, he writes the letter of Romans. Philippians is written in part to tell them how he is doing in jail, to thank them for their gift to him, but also to tell Iodia and Syncticity to get along. That's why, Ephesians, I mean, why Philippians has such an emphasis on unity and peace. Well, he's setting up this particular issue of strife in their church. We know that Thessalonians is written because news had spread that the Lord's return was either absolutely imminent or it already happened. And so Paul has to correct this. Christians have quit their day jobs and are waiting you know, for the Lord to arrive at any moment. And Paul has to deal with that. And 1 Corinthians, Dave Lample can tell you, there's just a laundry list of problems that Paul is correcting. You've got people denying the resurrection. You've got people sleeping with prostitutes. You've got people getting drunk at communion. You've got people worshiping at pagan temples. And on the list goes. Ephesians has none of that. As far as we can tell, there's no specific doctrinal error he's attempting to correct. There's, there's nothing that has happened, and there's nothing that he has in view is about to happen, which occasions the writing, which means then that more probably than any other epistle, Ephesians is written directly to us. What I mean by that is all Scripture is for us, but some of the things in Scripture are indirectly for us, so that when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy to bring him a cloak in prison. You and I reading that do not think, well, I better get my cloak and I better get my airplane ticket. And We understand that there is truth for us in that, but Paul's instruction to Timothy to get him a cloak and bring it to him is different in its application than it is for us, right? You understand that? Just as there is no one in our church named Yodia or Syncticity, so Paul's instruction that they get along. We can learn there's truth for us here. It is all for us in that sense. But in the first instance, in Philippi, there is an immediate application that is not directly for us. <clears throat> but because no such events occur in Ephesians, we really truly can read this in exactly the same way, with the same application as the church at Ephesus did. In fact, what the only thing I can find... That, that breaks that pattern is that very final closing. Um, if you look at 621 again, so that you also may know how I am doing, what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you. Well, Tychicus is, of course, not here to tell us how Paul is doing. So there's at least one spot in Ephesians where its immediate original application to the Ephesian church differs from our immediate application. But other than that, we really can receive this and read this and hear this as the church at Ephesus did 2,000 years ago, which is, I think, quite remarkable. It also means Paul can lay out his teaching more fully, more extensively, with no urgency, with no immediate crisis to deal with. And so consequently, Ephesians has some of the richest and deepest unpacking of the doctrine of the church, what it means for us to be a church, what it means for us to be one body reconciled to him, so it's occasion, general instruction, no particular crisis. No particular crisis. So who's it written to? Who's it written to? We're almost done, our authorship and background. It's written to the saints at and around Ephesus. Now here is where there is some controversy about the book. Some of the earliest copies that we have of Ephesians lack to the Ephesians. Many of them do, but some of them lack it. Um, and so some have questioned, is this rightly be understood as a letter to the Ephesians? I, I think it is. Um, but before I try to solve that, let me make the problem a little worse. We know from Acts 19 that Paul planted the church at Ephesus. In fact, let's, let's turn to Acts 18 
and, and briefly see the background of the Ephesian church. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, part of Asia Minor and a circle of seven churches in that region, the same seven churches referenced in Revelations chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And in Acts 18, we'll just read about the founding of the church at Ephesus. Paul planted this church. Acts 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. With him, Priscilla and Aquila at Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and he came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. Then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia, Phrygia, and strengthened all the disciples. So he, he goes out and he, he goes into the synagogue and he makes some disciples and he says he'll be back. Then we pick up in 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. This is the Apollos referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, who was left by Paul or who became a teaching leader at, at, at Corinth. <clears throat> he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public by the scriptures, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Here's his second visit. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And this is the disciples of John, and he rebaptizes them. And what we learn is that Paul ends up spending close to three years at Ephesus. He plants the church. He, he stays there extensively teaching there. Moreover, um, he leaves Timothy there. If you remember our letter to First, First Timothy, Paul has left Timothy or sent Timothy ahead to the church at Ephesus. And if you turn to Revelation chapter 1, the church of Ephesus shows up again there as well. This is a notable first century church. Founded by the Apostle Paul, having two to three years of his teaching, um, having his delegate Timothy sent there to do ministry. Church history suggests to us the Apostle John spent significant time there, although we cannot confirm that from the, the Scripture. <clears throat> but in Revelation chapter 1, look at the, uh, the original vision of the Son of Man, uh, Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Christ or in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And what's first on that list of seven churches? To Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, and yet, and some have pointed out, it lacks 
the familial greetings that so many of Paul's letters contain. And so the question is, if Paul really wrote this to the Ephesians, why isn't he greeting people by name as he frequently does? And why does he say things like chapter 1, verse 15? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith. What do you mean you've heard of it, Paul? You were there for three years. Or even more strangely, in three, chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. What do you mean, assuming you've heard of it? You planted the church, Paul. Well, I think the answer is somewhat simple and straightforward. Uh, clearly, Ephesus is a major hub of the churches in Asia Minor. And we even know from Acts 19 that while Paul was ministering there, the word of God and the, the word of report of his ministry spread to the entire region of Achaia. And so Paul, being removed now by some time, knows that there are many, many more disciples of Christ than he ever personally ministered to. And Paul also, I believe, wanting this church, to, this letter to be passed around the churches, omits many of those personal greetings that would be meaningful for people he knew at Ephesus, but might be less significant for those in the churches around. T turn to Colossians. Um, Colossians chapter 4. Some have called Ephesians an encyclical letter. I think it's probably a fair description. A letter meant to be passed around the churches. And so Paul writes it in a way that most makes it efficient for that. So I think the original recipients are indeed the Ephesians. But with a clear intention of this being passed around, we get some notion of this at the end of Colossians. Verse 15 of chapter 4. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of, La of the, sorry, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Some have even suggested the letter from Laodicea may in fact be Ephesians. They had a copy of this, and Paul is saying, "Hey, you give them a copy of Colossians, have them read it in their church, and the letter from me that they have, you read in your church." And so we even see evidence within these epistles of their circulatory nature, encyclical nature. So that's, I think, the best understanding of what Paul's doing. There's no particular crisis. He's in jail, and he wants to instruct. He wants to edify the church. He intends for this to get passed around. And what that means, then, is really uniquely, we can read this as the first century church would read this. We can read this as those churches who a letter came in from Paul, and it's just read, and it's immediate application for us. So, quickly, I want to give you a handhold structure of the letter. Now, hopefully, as we go through the letter, um, you will begin to become more and more familiar with it. But I think it's helpful to have some basic structures that if you're reading this letter, six chapters, and you find yourself in chapter two, three, four, five, you have some idea where you are in the book. So the most immediate breakdown of Ephesians is as follows. Outline and structure. Chapters one to three, indicatives. Indicatives. Indicative is a type of verb. It says what is. Um, Pastor Jeremy spoke for a long time. Is an indicative statement. As opposed to an imperative. Please stop speaking would be an imperative request. The first three chapters of Ephesians are largely indicative verbs. Paul is telling us what is, what has happened, what is true. Or if you want to think of the breakdown another way, it's doctrine as opposed to duty. You can two different ways of alliterating here. You can either say indicatives, 
And then the last three chapters, imperatives, commands, or doctrine and duty. Either way is fine. The key concept is the first three chapters of Ephesians are largely full of teachings, prayers, thanksgivings about what is, what will be, what has been done. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, how to live in light of that. The so what. It's, it's pretty clearly divided in that sense. So if you find yourself in the first three chapters, don't be surprised to encounter much teaching about who God is or who the church is or how you were saved or our former manner of life. And once you get into chapters 4, 5, and 6, you're going to get a lot of here's how you are to live. Here's what you're going to do in light of that. Here's the application. So chapters 1 to 3, indicatives. And a sub-breakdown even further... In chapter 1, what we is largely constituted of, chapter 1, is a praise and prayer for the Trinitarian working of salvation. Now, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 is one long sentence in Greek. And I think it'll take us three or four weeks to get through it. It is, it is profound. Paul is speaking of our election in, in, in history past of every member of the Trinity at work in our salvation. It is an incredibly rich passage about the triune God and his commitment to save and what he has done. He comes out of that with a a prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer on behalf of the church. It's chapter 1. Chapter 2, this is just a brief overview, focuses on our new position, there's your blank, new position both individually and corporately. Our new position, first individually, and, and so there's this contrast. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive in Christ. And you were formerly far off, but now you've been brought near. So he's interested in, in individually who you used to be versus who you are now in Christ. And corporately, you were not part of his body. You were not part of his people, but now you are. Chapter 2 focuses primarily on this notion of new position individually and corporately. And then if you turn to chapter 3, Here, Paul unpacks the mystery of and prayer for the church. You see it in verse 3, how the mystery is made known to me. Verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery. Verse 6, this mystery is the Gentiles, our fellow heirs. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Paul's going to insist that the church, in some sense, is a mystery. When, When Paul speaks of mystery, he doesn't mean a whodunit. A mystery in Paul's um, economy is something formerly hidden, something formerly inaccessible, now has been brought to light, now has been revealed. In other words, this is something you could not clearly get from the Old Testament. It's hinted at, it was hidden, but now it's been revealed. And what it is is that the Gentiles are full co-heirs, along with the Jews in the church. And then it ends this section of doctrine with an extensive prayer, the church will be knitted together in love. Which brings us then to chapters 4 through 6, the imperatives. The imperatives. And again, brief handhold for framework. He begins by going through five walks. Back in chapter 2, where he contrasted our former way of life and our current way of life, he does it by speaking of walk. And the concept in Greek is walking around your daily conduct. And so in verse 2, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should 
walk in them. There's a way you used to walk, and God saved you to walk a different way, and that's precisely where he picks up in chapter 4. And so as he goes through his instructions, he breaks them under five headings of walk. Walk this way, not that way. So 4.1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Look at verse 17. Now I say this in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So walk worthy, walk not as the Gentiles. 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then finally, 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So basically, four and five, you could group as five ways of daily living, five walks. And the fifth walk is going to basically tell us not to be drunk with wine, to be filled with the Spirit, and to, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so now there's this notion of interpersonal relationships, which is where the, the next section goes. As Paul's going to go case by case, here is how specific relationships in the church are to be carried out. It starts with wives to husbands. What does that look like? Husbands to wives then follow. Chapter 6 begins with children to parents and then parents to children. And then starting in verse 5, slaves to masters and masters to slaves. And so what we have at the end of 5 through the middle of 6 is what you can call the household code. Various relationships in the body are going to be carried out in different ways. What are the obligations of husbands, wives, children, masters, servants? You get the household code there, and which is pretty common for Paul. He does something like that a couple of times in his letters. And then finally, starting in verse 10, you get final instructions in the full armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So there's just a handhold structural overview of Ephesians. As you read this book, as you hear us study through it, first three chapters, doctrine, last three chapters, duty, first three chapters, indicatives, if you're grammatically inclined like me, last three chapters, imperatives, and then within that, subgroupings, and the, and the imperatives, we've got five walks, we've got a household code, and then we've got the armor of God. So that is the structure and outline of Ephesians, and with what's left, I'd like to read and then to try to dive into the first two verses. Now, what I want to do this morning, I'd like to do now and at the end of our series, I propose to read the entire epistle to the Ephesians. That's what the early church would have done. When the letter comes in, read it. We are the church. We have this letter, and I want to show you it can be done. You can read a letter in 15, 16 minutes, start to finish. And hopefully, even with some of that overview and some of that structure, you'll begin to see some of it flow together. So I will read. You may follow along. You can sit and listen as we read the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all Things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works." which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, know how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in their other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, by which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, host, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all rulers, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. If you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, not spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it, it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he is who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. That's the letter to the Ephesians. I'd encourage you, you can sit down, you can read it, you will grow in familiarity. Briefly, we're going to consider the first two verses. We've covered the introduction, so this should be something quick. In the first two verses, we get the identity of the author and the recipients. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We know who Paul is, and he's establishing his credentials. He's not writing on his own authority. He is a sent one. He is writing as God's ambassador. He's writing on God's behalf, and we receive this letter as the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What Paul has to say does not originate from what seems good to him, but he's linking his content back to the very will of God. And he writes to the church at Ephesus, but not just to them, I believe, but to all the churches, us being one. And he gives this greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he takes the standard Jewish greeting, shalom, peace, the standard Greek greeting, charis, grace, puts them together, grace to you and peace. This is his standard way of opening letters. There may be some subtle, deeper theological overtones, but at its heart, he's simply taking the Jewish and the Gentile greeting and saying, good day, grace and peace to you. But he links that grace and peace even not just from him, but from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the final point I'll make. This letter is meant to be a vehicle, a means of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter comes ultimately from them through Paul. Paul doesn't send his own grace and his own peace. Rather, he commends to them the grace and the peace that comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we dive into this over the coming weeks and months, I trust we will receive that grace and that peace. We will be blessed. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our closing song, and then we will be dismissed.